I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Dr. Susan Partovi, author of Renegade MD, A Doctor's Stories from the Streets. Dr. Susan Partovi first experienced poverty medicine, volunteering at a dump site in Tijuana during high school. Uh, She there recognized the need for all people to have access to quality medical care. Over the years, she's worked in various facilities around Los Angeles County, incorporating her renegade method of going the extra mile for her patients. As medical director of Homeless Healthcare Los Angeles, she works to provide a safety net of care for the underserved Skid Row community. She started documenting her patients' stories so that others could hear their voices along the way. Uh, she was, And then she was dubbed the Renegade MD by Los Angeles Magazine for her unconventional tactics to earn the trust of her patients. Welcome to the show, Doctor. Nice to have you on today. Oh, thank you. Good to, good to be with you this morning. Well, what are those unconventional tactics that I just mentioned? Can we start with those? Yeah, yeah. And I want to make sure people don't think I'm, you know, breaking rules and <laughs> and you know doing all the 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 wrong things but it's it's really about going that extra mile doing whatever it takes and having that philosophy of caring compassion uh, being conscientious and really accepting them with for who they are and where they're at um, and yeah, it's, so you're it's, doing the right things in an unconventional way and maybe addressing as I, <laughs> as uh, I understand yeah, it. And in your book, you're doing a, it. Yeah. Cause I don't think that traditional medicine necessarily does address the patient's needs in the way they need to be addressed. So, well, I, it's, it's not a supported notion, you know, what's, what's the, the thing, the thing out there is, you know, how many patients are you seeing and in what time, you know, we meet, you know, I, I also work for the county and, you know, we're constantly told, you know, you need to be seeing more patients and quicker and, and, you know, and it's not just the county, it's, 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 that's the, the, the moral <laughs> code that we're given as physicians is, you know, see more patients and faster. And, um, I'm, I'm saying, I'm not saying that's bad or wrong. And to be a good doctor, you need to be listening to what they're saying, accepting them for who they are and having compassion for, you know, the trauma that they've endured in their lives. And so, so it, give it, us an example of, uh, a day in the life of the renegade MD. That's you. Um, yeah. Well, you know, I, I do a bunch of different things, but I'll give you an example from the, the, the clinic that um, it's a drop-in center and it started off as, we first called it the needle exchange and then uh, eventually we changed it to the center for harm reduction. And harm reduction means that we're going to take care of you no matter what. And we're going to celebrate those small uh, accomplishments towards being safer, being healthier, being happy. And so it doesn't, it's not, you know, kind of, it's not abstinence only basically. Right. So we're, we're going to be working with you with where you're at. And so, um, 
Uh, and so I started off working there doing wound care for people who uh, were uh, using substances. They were injecting substances, mostly heroin at the time. You know, I've been there for 19 years. So in the beginning, um, there were a lot of really severe wounds and they didn't feel comfortable going to the emergency room because the doctors knew that they were heroin users and they were made to feel like crap, you know? And uh, so they didn't want to go there anymore because they didn't want to be treated like that anymore. And so I learned to treat them like they were my my family members, basically. And you, and especially when you're doing wound care, you're, you, you get, you have time to kind of talk to them, engage with them. You're playing music in the background. You guys are singing the same song together. And it really, I, you know, you really learned like, okay, this is another human being. This could be a family member of mine. And you just want to treat them the way that you would want to be treated. And so that's, you know, that's the renegade <laughs> in me. And does it so, take a toll? Uh, does it take a toll on you? Because I know in medicine and even as a therapist, they tell you there are boundaries. And if you get too engaged with your patients, it's going to, uh, it's it's not good. You know, you have to have a professional attitude because getting too emotionally involved is going to be too taxing as you on you as a professional. And it's not helpful. So that's a little bit different in terms of the relationship that you have with your patients. And how, and how is it, does it take a lot out of you emotionally? Absolutely. And you know what? I don't know. You know, I've worked with a lot of people who, who do outreach, not necessarily uh, clinicians. They could be, um, you know, peer, peers. They could be um, caseworkers. They could be um, substance use, um, you know, specialists, but, um, or just, you know, working in housing. But we all take it home. I mean, you're really invested in these people and you really want them to do well. And like I said, you know, the main, the, the main goal of, of, well, even in, even in just medicine with your regular primary care patients, you want to develop a relationship with them because you want to get, you want to earn their trust. So you just have to do that kind of to the nth degree (laughs) with this population and so you're you are going to get invested, and it's and you know I always tell people your highs are high, so your highs are like someone got housed, um, and then your lows are they die, you know. So so it's it's a very mercurial emotional trajectory, yeah. um, and you you know you do you do have safeguards, um, you know. There's it's very it's good to like be debriefing on a regular basis and. Um, having check-ins with each other, and it's not. I mean, I I, I know I know I'm the renegade, but um, you know I have a support system too. I have people that I can call, like when someone passes away, I can call you know someone and go, okay, let's let's break this down. Was there anything I could have done differently? And so you know, it's 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 important to 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 have that team mentality. Yeah. So you need your supports and you know where to get them. And it sounds like you do get them here. Uh, you know where to turn, but it, and I, uh, I go yeah. on vacation a lot. <laughs> well, that's good. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I think that's necessary. You have to get away. Right. But, uh, you know, we seem to, I think as a society 
homeless people. Uh, we blame them for their predicament. You know, it's their fault if they would only mm-hmm. or if they did this or if they weren't mm-hmm. didn't have an addiction problem, whatever it is, they can do something about it and they're not doing anything about it. So can you tell us who are the homeless? And uh, because they come from all the different backgrounds and they're homeless for a lot of different kinds of reasons. And uh, maybe you can speak about that. Yeah, um, there's you got to ask yourself, what is going on with someone that they don't have someone to live with? They don't have friends. They don't have family and that they're, they've hit this kind of rock bottom. What's going on? What's going on with them? They're, it's not because they're bad people <laughs> that they don't have friends. Um, usually, well, let's let's do some of the statistics. Up to eighty percent have some mental health issue. A third of the homeless population are severely mentally ill. So we're not just talking about you know depression, anxiety now. Um, and up to 75% are substance users and, um, up to, up to 50% have a physical, um, issue. And, you know, there's a lot of overlap. You can, you can have what we call the trifecta where you've got a medical condition, a mental health condition and a substance use condition, (laughs) then, um, you know, that's, that's kind of your, your the highest rate of death, um, if you've got that. So, so there's a lot of um, trauma that's going on in, in these people's worlds, and, and they're using whatever they can to cope, and they don't have healthy coping skills. Now, sometimes they learn them, and that's where the peers come in, right? There's, there's, I know, you know a, a lot of the people that I work with, actually used to um, be homeless or in and out of jail or uh, using substances to cope with whatever was going on with them. Um, I have one colleague who's like this amazing woman who was homeless for seven years and addicted to cocaine. And, you know, she eventually was able to overcome that. But seven years, that's like a lifetime. And it's just hard to think this like very productive, very funny, very amazing woman um, that she was in the throes of homelessness. So it really can be anyone. And, uh, and well, let's, can uh, we focus it, on her story? Seven years, as you say, that's a lifetime. That's a long time. Plus she had an addiction mm-hmm. problem. So how did she get herself out of that? And, you know, <laughs> you know, it's not, it's, it's, it's not what we want to hear. It's she was in and out of jail. And the last time she was in jail, she's like, okay, well, I guess I'll, I'll try and work the program. So she was, you know, and and there's, there's a lot of, you know, I'm an addiction specialist as well. And there's a lot of brain chemistry behind addiction. It's crazy. Like you have to learn, like I learned, like this part of the brain is responsible for, you know, responding to triggers. This part of the brain is responding, um, you know, to, to smells, you know, it's like, it's really, it's really ingrained in your brain. Um, and it's, it's, it's really hard to overcome. And so, you know, people who do overcome substance use, it's not necessarily a choice. I mean, uh, there is a choice that's, that's made, but, you know, there's a lot to over, 
to to have to overcome um, with with your your brain acting a certain way, whether you want to follow that or not. And so she chose to follow it. And I don't know, like if she's relapsed, you know, we haven't really discussed that. But um, uh, and you know, she 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 put herself in a program that has a significant amount of support. Um, and, and so, so she was able to succeed. I have a patient who I've known for 10 years, um, from our center from harm reduction who, um, were in and out of jail, just, I I don't even know, up 10 times and horrible wounds from injecting, um, heroin and, um, and still like really just. You know, there's something to be said about um, addiction and and mental illness, and and he he you know most of the people when you ask them, do you want to be using substances for the rest of your life? They're like, no, but I'm not ready this second, right? Yeah. <laughs> so you just have to be with them. So, for example, this this gentleman that I'm talking about, he. You know, I would see him for wounds, and like I said, that was a way of, you know, engaging with people, getting to know them, and, um, and you know, everyone who come, who crosses the threshold is a substance user, so it's not a big deal. <laughs> it's not like, oh, you know, we got to shake my finger at you, but they they want to keep coming back because they're we're treating them like they're human beings, and, you know, everyone wants to be treated like that. And, but it uh, sounds like the two and, people or the examples you just gave, they they actually went to jail. Do you have to go to jail first and really hit? No, <laughs> no, no, you no, don't no. have to. So, no. so, the, so the second scenario, um, he uh, got, he, we, we also worked with his mental health issues, um, got him on, got him stable with that. He um, soon got into a housing program and that it was the housing program that said, and I'm not sure if I agree with this, um, but it worked for him where they said, if you want, if you want to stay in this housing uh, program, you're going to have to go to rehab. So he, he had the wherewithal to say, okay, I'll go to rehab. And cause he, he really wanted to keep his housing situation. But while he was in rehab, he was telling me uh, secretly that he, he's not sure if he is ready to, to, stop using. Um, he wasn't using while he was in rehab. And so I was checking in on him saying, how are you feeling? He's like, I feel really different. (laughs) And I think it's, it is, it is, uh, you know, when you're used to being high, you know, for, you know, decades, it's, it's, it's something to think about. It's not just like, Oh, I, you know, there's so many, there's so many nuances, um, to, to it. And so I said, okay, um, if you still want to be using when you're done with rehab, let's talk about how we can keep you from overdosing and dying. So, you know, I have some tools, uh, you know, opiate, your opiate, um, opiate use replacement medication. I have some medications that help with cravings. And so, you know, let's, let's see if we can at least keep you from, from overdose and dying. And so he was on board with that. And then when he was done with rehab, he came back and I was kind of nervous. I'm like, okay, have you used yet? And he's like, no, and I don't want to. And so, 
And, you know, I just saw him a few weeks ago. He's nine months, you know, not using any substances, still on his housing program, and he feels great. But he had to come to that decision himself, and I was willing to support him with whatever direction he was going to go in. Because first, we got to keep them alive, okay? So my mantra is don't die. (laughs) And then if you don't die, then get housed. And then let's work on you being fulfilled and happy and, and you well, know, for you, being, but for you being, to be able to do that, it takes obviously a certain kind of uh, personality and perseverance, perseverance. And uh, it, I don't, as I'm listening to you and what you do in your work, I, I'm, I'm, you know, not every physician obviously would be able to do what you're doing um, and not feel defeated and, and, and be able to. Mm-hmm. To go on right so but I know that there's something or in your personal your own personal life um, that has I mean you had a challenging childhood as I understand that maybe we could talk about that a little bit because that's part of who you are and part of I'm assuming one of the reasons why you do this kind of work that you do well yeah I mean I've, I've had time to kind of look at it and um, and I I I didn't have a happy childhood, even though I grew up in Brentwood. Um, it was a it was it was a difficult household. Um, a lot of yelling and um, and discord, and uh, and often and, and you know as an adult I can say okay they did their best, um, but in the you know as the kid you know I felt very unloved and um, there wasn't a lot of physical or expressed uh, love (laughs) in the household. And, uh, and so I think, I think that made me want to do, uh, do something to, to where I'm making a difference in the world. Like I, and, and it's, it's hard, it's kind of a hard, hard to explain why, but I guess Maybe because it made me feel like um, I was I was worthy or or purposeful or um, lovable, you know, doing the doing good in the world made me feel good about myself, right? Um, but then you know, but then after, you know, as I grow up and I I realize, okay, now I'm now I'm not doing it to prove something to myself anymore, right? Now I'm now I'm you know, at first I was like angry, I was doing it out of anger. <laughs> And, uh, but, but now, you know, and that, that doesn't, that's not very sustainable either. So now it's, it's, it's really, you know, I see, I see a light in people. I see their humanity. I see a potential. Um, and, and I want them, I want them to live their life's purpose and I want them to be healthy and happy. And, and so that's kind of where I've, you know, processed myself, um, to, to, to be. And, and in the, and then in the meantime, I've had to, I've had to deal with, um, uh, my mom developing Alzheimer's, um, like in her seventies and having to take care of her. And then, and then really sadly, my, my half sister, um, who, uh, uh, was, was a French, teacher, a high school French teacher, very fun and funny. And, um, she, she developed, 
uh, what's called frontal temporal lobe dementia in her 50s. And and within, you know, a couple years became like a toddler and really, really, really sad disease. Um, and so ended up having to take care of her too. And, and, and a lot of times, um, you know, when, when loved ones don't, when, when family members don't have other people to rely on, like my, my mom was going to lose her condo had I not stepped in. I didn't know that. I didn't know she wasn't paying her property taxes for five years. And she was, you know, literally on the cusp of losing her condo. She would have been homeless had she not had family members. And I have seen, um, I have uh, encountered people who are living on the streets or about to be living on the streets because of their dementia. And a lot of times it's really hard to figure out to tease out is this dementia or is this mental illness that, you know, and I actually have several stories in my book about people who were either on the brink of homelessness or were homeless because of they had developed dementia and they didn't have anyone to take care of them. And so, um, yeah, so I had to, I, you know, it became very personal <laughs> um, pretty, pretty quickly. So uh, I guess it's really important, not a, a guess, but it is important. The diagnosis is important, as you say, early diagnosis for dementia. Um, you describe it, your sister was in her 50s. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. So, um, well, that's a good, that's a good point about um, diagnosis. You know, we, and um, we, we really use diagnosis as a way to figure out how are we going to treat someone? How is something going to be paid for? But really, we should not really care about one's diagnosis when it comes to taking care of someone. So you need to ask yourself, can this person really take care of themselves um, or do they need a higher level of care? And it really shouldn't matter why they can't take care of themselves. So it shouldn't matter, is it because they've been using substances for so long that they've developed brain injury from that? Or is it because they're severely mentally ill, which when it goes untreated also causes brain damage? Or is it because they have true, you know, TBI, they have true brain damage, you know, these are, or dementia. These are all scenarios where people who are adults who, who over time cannot take care of themselves, and yet we have different um, attitudes. Like if, you know, my mom... If I put her into what we call like memory care, um, which is a locked facility, no one would have a problem with that. But if I put um, a loved one who has severe mental illness, who can't take care of themselves in a secured facility, that's taking their rights away. So it would be nice to not have the disparity between different diagnoses and just look at is someone able to take care of themselves or not. Yeah, I'm glad you explained that because that I mean we have a stigma against actually all just in general I think there's stigma against mental illness, addiction, all of these. Uh, yeah, things all of these not diagnoses. Dementia, though. We, yeah, yeah, not yeah, not exactly. Dementia. Yeah, we and you're just saying for, if a person needs yeah. help, they need help, and it really doesn't matter yeah. what the diagnosis is. Yes, you have to address the di- diagnosis as yeah. a physician, but uh, you have yeah. to make sure that everybody, you know. Uh, isn't harmed. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's important. And a uh, lot of times I'll, you know, 
like especially uh, you know several years ago. I think I think now people are trying are trying to have that same attitude. But in the past, I would you know talk to say someone from the Department of Mental Health saying this person is really really disabled and you know obviously can't take care of himself. And they're like, well, it's due to alcohol. It's not due to mental illness. And I'm like doesn't matter. (laughs) It's like, you know, luckily the California statute um, says that you're, you're considered gravely disabled due to a mental illness or alcohol use. I had to remind them that, but that's kind of the old way of thinking that it's like, oh, if it's a substance use issue, then, you know, we don't, we don't have to take care of you. And yeah, so, and we don't yeah. have to deal with it. Um, we have a couple minutes left. I want everybody to read the book, Renegade MD, A Doctor's Stories from the Streets. I have been talking to the doctor, Dr. Susan Partovi. Uh, she is the author. Can you give us a website or website sure. to go yeah, to so, so my, that we can, yeah. Yeah, my website is therenegademd.com. <laughs> So pretty easy. And then you can get my book at on Amazon. Um, and then there's uh, Audible should be coming uh, within within a month, I would say. So um, and then, you, you know, that pretty, pretty easy. Yeah. So there are lots of places we can get the book. I'll, I'm going to. Uh, yeah. Audible is great. I, I, I like that. Are you doing the voice for Audible or is somebody or you, do you have a voice over? My- yeah, it was it was a very interesting experience uh, having to not to 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 read it slow enough to where you have to voice it yeah. and you're like the the that's the a producer. different that's another I hate to interrupt but we have to say goodbye we have thirty seconds no, left no no worries no worries but thank you Go so much it. yeah thank you for being on the show today we really oh, do appreciate it so, thank you such a yeah. pleasure thank you so much I really thank appreciate everything. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. 